Good morning, folks. I'm Brother Matthew, and welcome to Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And today we're going to continue on our study of the Book of John. Uh, we're up to chapter 5, and we're just doing a simple walkthrough of just taking a look at what it says, how it's being said, and how we compare what we're reading with other aspects, aspects of the Word of God. And then we're taking a look at how we can apply it to ourselves to go live it, speak it, think it, do it. So I hope that this has been an, an encouragement and a blessing to you as we're just doing a simple, just simple walkthrough, simple exposition of the Gospel of John. Um, I always love it when we go through the Gospel of John. It's my favorite book of the Bible. This, every time we go through it, we find something else, something new that we haven't seen before. And it's just it's so powerful. It's so insightful. And it's so simple when you look at it, seeing how it explains the life of Christ, the identity of Christ, work of Christ. And it shows us how we can go and witness to others. So I hope that this has been a great blessing to you. And if you have any comments, questions, issues, insights regarding the content at hand, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. Be glad to hear from you. If it's not relating to the topic at hand, if you could just hold that to the end of the study or to the next broadcast. Um, on Saturdays, we usually do our Q&As, and that's when we kind of go about answering all the other, other questions kind of unrelated to the regular Bible study. All right. So please grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens, and grab your tea, grab your coffee. It's time to study the Word of God. We're going to be taking a look at what it says in John chapter 5. And we're going to just walk through this just verse by verse, point by point, word by word, just seeing what's going on. <clears throat> now, chapter five has an interesting tidbit here that a lot of people aren't aware of. And I always love bringing this one out whenever we uh, go, go through Ch John chapter five is uh, it's really, really mind blowing when you take a look at this. So I hope that uh, you're ready for this. All right. So again, we're going to be using the three points of the Christian faith, the three points of Bible study, which are what? Can someone tell me what are the three points of the Christian faith, the three points of Bible study? What is it? What are the three points? And can you tell me what the verses are that we use to back up the three points? <clears throat> can someone tell me what is it called the three points of the Christian faith, the three points of Bible study, what are the three points, and what are the verses that we use to back up the three points, the, the, the three aspects of the Christian faith, the three points of Bible study? What are they? We go over this nearly every, every Bible study morning. We go through this in detail. I'll help you out, give you a little, little cheat. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it's the Berean. Berean what? The Berean what? It is Acts 17, 11, about, it's something in relating to the Bereans. The Bereans who were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. I know our good friend Pam knows what it is. Interpretation Second Peter. There you go. Yeah, it's the Brian method. Amen. Amen. It's the Brian method. It's the Brian method of studying the word of God. We're called to be as the Bereans. 
the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word as it was the full word of God. Fully, everything they heard, they received it as the word of God, all the scriptural teachings. And then they searched the scriptures. They applied themselves to it. They searched the scriptures from cover to cover, applying all scripture with scripture. And it says they searched the scriptures daily. So they see, see apply it to themselves to go live it, speak it, think it, do it in every day. This is a daily work, a daily thing that they applied to themselves. So again, we've got interpretation, application, and there's a third one. Third one. I know she's typing it. I know she's typing it. Demonstration. Interpretation, application, demonstration. That's the what, the how, the why. There's only one interpretation of scripture. What it says is what it means. That's Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Then we go to application. There, there's one interpretation, but many applications. It can be applied mentally, physically, spiritually, circumstantially. And then we can apply scripture with scripture, rightly dividing the word of truth, line upon line, precept upon precept. And then we apply it to ourselves for a personal demonstration to go live it, speak it, think it, do it. Acts 17.11. And as a bonus, 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15, about sanctifying the Lord God in your heart and being ready to give answer. All right. So we're going to use this in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. All right, so grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to go through this just line by line, just bit by bit here, seeing what's going on. And again, if you have any comments, questions, issues, insights regarding the study at hand, go ahead, ask away. Be glad to hear from you. But if it's not relating to the topic at hand, if you just hold that to the end of the study or to the next broadcast. And as well, folks, please make sure you give this a like and a thumbs up. If you enjoyed these studies, make sure you subscribe, hit notification bell icon. So you know when we put up new videos and be greatly appreciated your support of this channel. All right. So John chapter five. <clears throat> now, after this, what back up all right so the one thing we want to take a look in the word of god when we're doing studies through this is now hear me out when you look back at the old scrolls the original the original manuscripts and all this now in in these were they were solid letters they were solid letters you see the letters of Apostle Paul to the different churches. You see the Pauline epistles were solid letters. That, that These letters did not have chapter-verse divisions. Chapter-verse divisions. It was just one solid writing. But the translators, when they were translating from the original Greek and the Hebrew, they broke it up into sections for easier study, research, and uh, just easier reading in this way. Now, when you're reading through the scriptures, you're reading through a book, often it'd be a good idea to just look ahead a little bit. When you come to the end of the chapter, look ahead to see if the thought, the context continues into the next chapter and continue reading the rest of the context. Sometimes we see that in, in the Bible where they actually put a division technically where there shouldn't be a division the words are preserved by god but the chapter verse division numbers are not 
the chapter verse division numbers were added to help with the flow and help with the reading and the research and, and the understanding of this. So, but however, the words are preserved. So as you see, and after this is a feast, after what? So you want to back up. You want to get uh, some more of the context of what is actually going on. So you see Jesus healing the nobleman's son. Thy son liveth and himself believed in his whole house. Verse 54. This again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And after this was a feast of the Jews. So you see how, how the story continues right into this. So this is just a, um, a something just to keep in mind when you're reading the word of God. When you're doing studies of scripture is look back a little bit to see if maybe the thought continued before and look ahead to see how far the thought, the thought, the context goes. So keep in mind that. All right. And after this was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool. All right. Now what we're going to get into here is something really incredible. Now also, What's really interesting in a lot of the modern, the newer modern Bible versions, this portion right here that we're reading is actually omitted. They actually took it out. This, this whole portion regarding the pool of Bethesda, they actually omit this whole thing uh, regarding the pool of Bethesda. Now, why? Because they don't because the writers, the translators of those newer translations don't believe the story. They don't believe the story of the pool of Bethesda. Now, why? What's so incredible about it? We'll see. All right. Now, there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. All right. So now this is interesting. The pool of Bethesda with five porches. Five porches surrounding this pool of water. In these porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Wait a minute. Is that not the uh, the fountain of youth, where the the legend of the fountain of youth came from, of this special miracle water that when you drank it, when you got into it, it would heal you and, <clears throat> and restore your strength and health and everything back to the youth that you had. That's the fountain of youth. I'm just saying. That's where it came from, the idea of it. The Pool of Bethesda, having five porches, and in the middle of the uh, porches were all the lame, halt, and blind, all these people were, that an angel went down. Now, it doesn't say fallen angel. It doesn't say anything about this being a, a pagan thing. It doesn't say anything about this being a heathen thing. Also, here's something else to consider. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years when Jesus saw him lie and and knew that he had now been a long time in that case, he said to him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. 
but when I am coming, another step is down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Would Jesus be walking through a pagan temple? No. There are some people who actually believe and teach that the Pool of Bethesda is a pagan temple. Okay, why in the world would a heathen pagan temple be in the middle of Jerusalem? Why in the world would Jesus be walking through this pagan temple, healing people in this pagan temple? And the Bible says you shouldn't be going anywhere near those places. You shouldn't be going in them. It, should, it teaches to, to abstain from those things. Rather, this is something that is of God. This is a, a grace of God because now here's something else to look at. The number five. I actually have it underlined in my Bible here, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, verse two, having five porches. Five is the number of grace. Five is the number of grace. And in between, in the middle of these five porches is a pool of water where an angel of God would come down at, from time to time, would trouble the water, and the first person in the water would be healed of whatsoever ailment, issue, disease, illness he had. It, so this is a pool of grace. A pool of grace. A gracious, merciful gift of God of a special, miraculous thing that God would do for Israel. And it just so happens that God is walking through the porches. God is walking through the porches. God's pool of grace, God's porches of grace, of mercy, and he's walking amongst these people. You see that? There's such a picture here. For an angel... Went down at a certain season into the pool. Now, let me just ask a question. Could someone answer this for me? Does it say anywhere in the Bible? Anywhere. Does it mention, like, demons, fallen angels, devils, Satan, false gods, false spirits, evil spirits? Does it ever mention any of those types of creatures as just, in general, an angel. Or only, only angels of God are just generically mentioned as angel. So this is very important. This is very, very important. Is the hyper-specific nature of Scripture. Whenever God is talking about a certain creature of, of spiritual, supernatural character, God in his word is always, always hyper-specific of regarding who, what those things are, what it is. Exactly. Some people think this is talking about a devil, but it's not. For an angel... If it was a demon, if it was a, a fallen angel, if it was a false spirit, it would say that. The very fact that it says just generically an angel, this is then saying, according to the text, it's an angel of God. For example, if we hold our finger here, put a bookmark here, and go back to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, you also want to take a look at my video that I have in regarding the Nephilim. You want to scroll back in my video playlist a while and you'll see one there. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, 
there are so many so many people that believe that verse two that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives. Now, some people believe that that's referring to fallen angels. Okay, can you please tell me where in the Bible does it ever call fallen angels, devils, demons, sons of God? It doesn't say that, and it never will. Well, in the book of Job, yeah, there's a time when the sons of God presented themselves unto the Lord. That's the angels that Satan came. Satan is not called a son of God, servant of God, or an angel of God. He's not called that. They, they are always called what they are, evil beasts, devils, demons, the opposers of God, the accusers of the brethren, the enemies. They're always called that. They are never, ever, ever given just a generic title, just kind of a passive term or anything else other than denoting who or what they are. The angels of God are always the angels of God, the servants of God, and they are not called anything else other than that. So we go back to John chapter 5. So therefore, presuming that John chapter 5 is talking about a pagan temple is doing God a disservice and is actually, as the Bible says, woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. You are then condemning, cursing something that is of God by saying that this porch, this work of God was something of the devil. That is actually a form of heresy, a form of blasphemy. You're calling something uh, that is of God, of the devil. It says an angel went down. Now, it doesn't say how often or when, just whenever it just happened to do this. Whenever God would dispatch this angel to go and do this work. That the angel would go down and stir the waters, stir up the waters. So the waters, that means to make the waters boil, to make the waters boil. So it's a calm pool. And this angel would come down and would affect the water and cause the water to boil. And the first person to jump in would be healed of whatever they had. That's what it says here. Would be made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Now, how is that possible? Well, did, would it be just as ridiculous or impossible as parting the sea in half? Or how about the lions in the den of lions for Daniel where God shut their mouths? Or how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the burning fiery furnace and the fire didn't touch them? Or how about water coming from a rock? Or how about hail falling from the sky and burning as fire on the ground? Or how about walking on water, turning water to wine? How come some people are so quick to cherry pick the word of God and in, in accepting what miracles they, they deem as possible and others that are not? I don't really understand that logic. It's just, it says it. That's what happened. God did it. God is able to do it. Why is it so impossible to believe that? All right, so let's move on. <clears throat> Verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity of 38 years. So this guy had an issue for 38 years. Now, what is the issue? When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had now been a long time in that case, he said unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man, lame, can't walk. He's lame and can't walk. There is such a, a, a teaching, a, a preaching option. It's in here. It's incredible how so many people can 
be so close to grace. They're, it's as if they're lame, lying in the porches, lying in the porches of grace, so close to the water. They, they hinder themselves in this. Because as Jesus shows this guy, he says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had now been there a long time. Okay, just quick, hold up a second. How did Jesus know that he'd been there a long time? Well, the same way as earlier we read this as in Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Before Philip came and called thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. How does Jesus know what's in our mind, know what's in our heart? How does he just know what's going on around him when he's in a completely other place? Well, Jesus is God. So the God of grace is walking through the porches of grace, around the pool of grace. All right. And Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto them, wilt thou be made whole? Don't you want to be healed? Well, well no one is helping me. Why is your faith dependent on other people? You don't have faith in people. You don't wait for people to to help you wait for people to build up your faith. Don't look to people as being the example of faith. You look to Christ. Wilt thou be made whole? Don't you want to be healed? Don't you want help? Don't you want wisdom? Don't you want insight? Don't you want teaching and understanding? Don't you want strength of faith? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. I have no one to help me. I have no one else around. I don't know what to do. I have no man. When the water is troubled, when grace comes, when the help comes, I have no one to help me to put me into the pool. I need people to help me to, 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 to stand in faith. That's not how it works. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We see in James chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. You see, faith as well, as we, as we take a look here, if we go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 to 24. And Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God. Not people. Not water. The water is not healing you. The angel is not healing you. The oil is not healing you. We look in James 5, as any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and they praying over him, anointing him with oil and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Not the oil. The oil does nothing. The oil does nothing. Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed. And be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, ye shall have them. Having faith in the Lord, having faith in God, having faith in the powers of Christ, in the name of Christ, in the spirit of Christ, in the blood of Christ. So I have some comments here. 
Like those grace, pool of grace for healing. We serve the most amazing God. Amen. Amen. It's amazing you said that. Joyce just posted something similar and mentioned a scripture about how a guy relied on the king. Which can be seen as and didn't win a battle because of it. Yeah, so as you see in the word of God, we can't depend on people. We can't depend on abilities, senses, emotions, or feelings or dreams, visions, experiences, any of those kinds of things. It must be faith in the full Christ of the full word of God, who is the mighty God manifested in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. And if you're referring to Joyce Myers, Joyce Myers doesn't believe in, in Jesus being God. She doesn't believe that Jesus is God. She says Jesus stopped being the son of God on the cross and became sin incarnate and went down to hell where he atoned for our sins in hell. So she believes in a completely false gospel. So, but again, she's depending on something other than the word of God. So she needs to actually listen to what she's even saying. So now, if we take a look at what happens here, Jesus says, wilt thou be made whole? Okay, now, how can we be made whole of the issues that come up against us? You see, the Lord has given us, the Lord has given us his grace. God's grace is not earned. God's grace is not merited. You don't have to try to earn God's favor. God walks in the porches of grace and gives us his pool of grace. Remember John chapter John chapter 2, Jesus, sorry, John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well about how within us springs up a well of living water. That's also grace. A overflowing, bubbling Living spring, a bubbling spring, stirring of water, which means boiling. So a bubbling, boiling spring of living water that flows within us. What is that? The spirit of God, the living water of the spirit of, the, of grace, the spirit of Christ is within us. We trust what God has said. We trust what God has given. We trust in the spirit of Jesus Christ that lives in the heart of every believer. Ephesians 3.17. The impotent man is depending on people. He's judging after the outward appearance. He doesn't understand how grace works. Grace is not dependent on our abilities. Our inabilities do not limit the abilities of Christ, and God's grace is not, re is not reliant upon our abilities. Grace is naturally, just instinctually, lovingly given. It's given to you. Now, why? Because he has given us his son. Because the spirit of Christ lives in our hearts. He has imputed upon us his righteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ has been washed over us. He holds us in our hand. He seals us with his spirit. He stands by our side, surrounds us with a host of angels. And he writes our names in the Lamb's book of life. What is it that we have to earn? Favor? How do we not have favor of God when we're so wrapped up like this? We have his favor. We have his grace. His grace is always bestowed upon us. It's not just reach out and take it. Reach out and take a hold of grace. Sir, I have no man. Well, 1 John, 2, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and 1 Timothy 2, 5, Jesus is our, our advocate. Jesus is our mediator. Ephesians 1, 7, he is our redeemer. 1 John 5, 20, Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life. Why do we need people? 
Sir, I have Christ. I have no man, but I have Christ. But I have Jesus Christ. I don't need anyone else's help. I can't depend on me. People will let me down. People will fail me. I can't depend on persons. I may be all alone, but one who stands with God is in the majority. One with the Lord is in the majority. Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. No one else can bring you to grace. No one else can, can show you the same grace that God gives. No one else can bestow upon you that which God can do. People are not gods. People do not have power. People do not have all knowledge, all wisdom, all ability. People can't heal you. God does. To put me in the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. There will always be someone better than you. There will always be someone faster than you. There will always be someone stronger than you. There will always be someone better off than you, healthier than you, have, have stronger, uh, seem stronger faith, stronger abilities. Some people have a better ability to witness and evangelize. There's always someone who seems, it looks like, has, has it better off than me. But what does Jesus say? Another steppeth down before me. And Jesus answered, rise, take up thy bed and walk. Jesus ignores his, his pity party. Jesus ignores his troubles. Jesus just shows him grace. Grace is not something that is tangible. Grace is something that is experienced. The grace of God. Jesus looks at him. He looks beyond my fault and sees my need. Like the song, he looks beyond my fault and saw my need. Jesus just says, rise. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. You don't look at the fall. You look at the rising up. Where the Lord is not going to judge you and hate you and despise you and cast you away and think less of you and work less with you because you fall. Show me a Christian that doesn't fall. Show me a Christian that doesn't make mistakes. But rather, we see here, Jesus looks beyond all of that. And Jesus says, rise, get up, get up. We stand, we stand with Christ. Not, we stand in the promises, not sit in the premises. Stand, take up thy bed. That which you have established, which you have established. You think that this is where you have to dwell, where you're stuck at. You think you're stuck in this rut. You think that you have to abide in this place. No, take it up. Get rid of those ideas. Get rid of that established thought and those established ideas, those, those beliefs that you have. Get rid of that. Take up thy bed and walk. Walk the narrow road. Walk with Christ. Come follow me. We're not supposed to just believe in him and then sit down on the bleachers and just watch the battle. We're supposed to get in the war. We're supposed to get busy and praying and fasting and devoting and witnessing and evangelizing, doing the work of the Lord, serving the Lord in all things. Hand out the tracks, speaking for the Lord. Rise, take up your bed and go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. But I don't know what to say. I will give you the words with which to say in the very same hour. But I don't know where to go. I will guide thee with mine eye. But it's dark. My word is a lamp unto your feet and a light into your path. But I don't know what to think. Thy word, thy word 
my word is upon you. Meditating on my word. I will teach thee what thou shalt say. Well, I don't know how to pray. I will teach you how to pray. Got any more excuses? Rise. Get up. Stop being like an Eeyore with a little black cloud over your head, following you everywhere you go. Get rid of the cloud. The garment of praise has been given for the spirit of heaviness. Got any more excuses? The word of God gets rid of all excuses. The word of God establishes true grace, true mercy, where the true light now shines. And we see Christ in his fullness. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. But how? Believe in me. Have faith in God. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not to thine own understandings, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, that he shall direct thy paths. We live in grace. We live in the pool, not the porches. The porches are just that which brings you to the pool of grace, the living water. I am the water of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of life, Jesus says. What happens when Jesus shows him? Jesus shows him true grace. What happens? Sorry, a question here. I have a question. When we pray for others to be saved and believe it is and believe it, is it not proper being that it overrides someone's will? Is it God's will that people be saved? Yes. Look at John chapter 6, uh, verses 27, 28. It, the, sorry, 39 and 40. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. The will of the fathers all believe upon Christ. And John John chapter 6, uh, verses 20 and 29. What shall we do that might work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. The will of the Lord is that God is not willing that any should perish. He wants all men everywhere to repent. He wants all to be saved. But God so loved the world and he is the atonement for all the world. Right. Now, when we pray for someone's salvation, that is the will of God. It is the will of God that someone gets saved. You are praying and thus then bestowing more conviction that you are you are praying for them the spirit of the lord rides on the prayers of faith and the spirit of the lord will now work upon that person more than he has before because the more people pray for him the more the lord will work on them and those people then will be convicted will be shown this the lord will be drawing them more than he ever has before and that person will that would then have more of an opportunity to be saved because they however have to soften their hearts stop fighting and have to believe God's not going to save someone against their will. That doesn't happen. God is never going to come down and forcibly save someone. They have to choose. They have to choose to believe Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, Hebrews 10, 26 actually talks about that, where you can ignore the enlightenment, ignore the grace of God. I say the exact same thing. We are moved to the Holy Spirit to intercede. That's right. <clears throat> God is a gentleman. That's right. Amen. So Jesus says in verse 8, John chapter 5, verse 8, Rise, take up that bed and walk. Now, what does this guy do? When he sees now that his own opinions and feelings, his personal ideologies, his personal revel revelings, his, per his personal issues are of no avail, of no point, are irrelevant. And he sees that the only thing relevant is just what Christ says. If Jesus says, go, do you think he's just going to let you go all alone? When God sent Moses to Egypt, did he just say, okay, Moses, you go and do it. I know you got this. You got this, Moses. Go, go ahead and, and, and you, you do it. You know, you know what to say. You know what to do. And God just stays back on Mount Sinai, twiddling his thumb and just waiting for Moses to come. 
No, God goes with him. He says, open your mouth. I will give you the words to say. Raise your hand. I will do the work. Step your foot. I will guide your footsteps. I do all the work. I just need you to go. If you would just stand up, go to stand up. I will strengthen your legs in that moment to stand. Jesus sees the man with the withered hand. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Did he heal his hand before? Or did he heal his hand as the man went to stretch it out? The act of faith. The act of faith. The act of faith. The act of believing faith is what God rewards. He's not going to give you it all, all, all power, all ability before. He gives you it at the very moment you need it. So we see here, verse 9, And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Now, the same day was the Sabbath. Now, the other thing I also want to bring up in this is how blind some people can see. They, they think they see. They think they see the faith. How blind they see. They're looking at the very pool of grace. They're living in grace. They're surrounded by grace. The God of grace is standing before them. And they just don't get it. And they just don't get it. They think that it's still dependent on works. They think it's still dependent on righteous works. They think it's still dependent on doing things, maintaining things, having things, saying things rightly or whatever. They don't understand. It's just about simply believing. People don't heal you. The water doesn't heal you. The oil doesn't heal you. Angels don't heal you. Prophets don't heal you. Holy men don't heal you. Only God heals. Having faith in that which is above my ability. Having faith in that which is able to work when I am not. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. Now the Lord works in ways against people's own preconceptions. I always like to bring that up where, for example, you look at Moses when he uh, was led of God, where God led them to the side of, of, the, of the Red Sea. Their backs are to the Red Sea. Egypt is barreling down on them. Did any of the Israelites or even Moses have the slightest clue that God was going to part the sea? No. Has anyone ever seen someone walk on water before? No. Has anyone ever seen someone turn water to wine before? No. Has anyone ever seen someone multiply just a couple of fish and a couple of, a couple of loaves of bread for thousands and thousands and thousands of people? No. God works in ways that goes against the common narrative. God defies the laws of physics. He goes against common logic, common reason. You see, so many people limit God to the realm of just physical science. Well, because physical science deems it not possible, then it's not possible. God's going to do some other way. Really? 
Okay, that's interesting. Your God is limited. So we see here that God goes against the laws of physics. He goes against common reason, common logic. That God works in ways that we don't expect. The point is just to have faith that God will do it. He will deliver. He will open the door. He will open an opportunity. He will open a door of utterance of witnessing. He will give you the words of which to say in the very same moment. He will bring the healing provision, the guidance, the protection. He will work it out somehow, some form, some way. Our job is just to believe that he will. Not tell God how to do it. Not to tell God how to do it. And he was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Just like Jesus says. He did exactly as Jesus said. We do exactly as God says. What does he say? Don't add to it. Don't twist it. Don't try to change what it says. Just what does it say? Did he say it? Then that's what he's going to do. God can't lie. His word is preserved unto all generations. Jesus can never fail. He'll never go back on a promise. Take him at his promises. What did he say? He is God, and there is a God, and his name is Jesus. And God can't lie. So, God, in the form of man, by the name of Jesus, healed this man on the Sabbath. All right. Now, why is that an issue? See, I love this. Oh, man, how I'd love to be a fly on the wall to see this conversation upcoming. I would have loved to hear this. So Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day. Now, why is that an issue? Well, according to Judaism of back then with the Pharisees, they had completely destroyed and corrupted the whole point of Sabbath. And what's really sad is there are so many Christians today who also kind of sort of have the same kind of pharisaical outlook on the Sabbath. Sabbath is not just a singular day of, you know, just worship and do nothing. No, no, it's, it's Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day of honor. Now, again, we take a look at this. It's just a time of reflection, worship, devotion, service, honor, respect to the Lord. Paying attention to the whole uh, teaching of righteousness and grace and the blood atonement of the sacrifice of the Lamb and repentance and just mindfulness of all of this and worship and honor and serving the Lord in whatsoever you do, even in, even in eating and drinking, do all to the glory of God. Now, do we only do that one day a week? Are we only to do this one day a week? Well, the Bible says, For ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What? Know ye not? Ye are the temple of God which is in you, and ye are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Whenever ye are gathered together, do this in my name. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Um, every day is our Sabbath, not just one day a week. We live every day honorable unto the Lord in worship and service and honor and favor and respect and love and devotion and prayer and fasting and, and evangelism and service of God. 
We are children of the Most High God. We are priests of the temple of the Most High God. We are living temples of the Most High God who lives in us. Every day is our Sabbath. We live, as it were, every day our Sabbath in respect and honor and devotion and love unto God. That which is done in the name of the Lord is honorable to the Lord. He honors those who honor him, and he honors that which is done in his name. So was it wrong for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath? No, because what did this guy do? Jumped up, started praising God. So that which you can do to cause people to praise the Lord is honorable. It's not about, oh, you can't mow your lawn on the Sabbath. Well, I guess we better sell all our lawnmowers because every day is our Sabbath. Let's not be Pharisees, shall we? So the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. So other people's opinions are irrelevant. Well, how other people might judge you in that which you do for the Lord is irrelevant. If God called you to do a work, if God appointed you to do a thing, if God pointed you in a direction and said, go, I'll be with you whatsoever you do, um, other people's opinions and presumptions are irrelevant. They're judging after the appearance. They're not judging righteous judgment. Rather, they should have asked you, have you prayed and fasted about this? Have you sought the scriptures about this? Did the Lord speak to you about this? Yeah. Okay, fine. God bless. That's a proper way. But instead, these Pharisees, now, did the Pharisees ever help the lame? No. Did the Pharisees ever help the sick? No. Did the Pharisees ever help the poor? No. Did the Pharisees even care about anything about the people? No. They only care about themselves. But as long as they are hyper-religious, legalistically religious and, and holy in appearance, make sure they do everything right. They're so self-focused, self-conceited, self-righteous that they have no heart for charity and outreach and helping other people. They only care about themselves. Narcissistic. That's right. But those who serve the Lord in pure grace... And mercy, realizing what the Lord saved them out of and how the Lord helps them. They want to bestow double portion upon others as the Lord has helped them. Exactly. Worship every day. So we serve the Lord in everything that you do. In everything that ye do, do all to the glory of God. Can you honor the Lord while you're mowing the lawn? Yeah, the Lord gave you your property, right? Right? Is it wrong to care for it? No. As long as you're doing it in, in remembrance of the Lord and honoring him about it, he gave it to you. You're the caretaker of it. So how is it wrong to mow your lawn? The Lord gave you your car, right? Is it wrong to wash that which, uh, which God gave you? No. You shouldn't wash your car on the Sabbath. Uh, I guess I could never wash my car then because every day is a Sabbath. So you see, it's not about what you're doing. It's about how you're doing it. How you're doing it. The hyper-legalistic, pharisaical, religious, they don't look at the how, they just look at the what. They judge after the outward appearance. Jesus said, take up your bed. That's doing things on the Sabbath. That's doing things on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. 
that kind of goes against the the modern hyper legalistic religiosity. That's taboo. We're not supposed to do that. Jesus said, "Take up your bed." Just saying. Are you supposed to pray before you do everything? Or what does that scripture mean? To do everything unto the Lord. Mindfulness of the Lord is bringing him into it. Bring him into it. Like when you go for a walk, do you talk to the Lord? When you go shopping, do you talk to the Lord? When you're at work, do you talk to the Lord? Is, is bringing the Lord with you. Mindfulness of Christ and being in close fellowship with the Lord. Talking to him in everything that you do. Fellowshipping with him fellowshipping with him in everything that you do mindfulness of him in everything that you do thinking okay what bible verse can apply to this what scriptural teaching can apply to this bringing the lord bringing heaven bringing scripture bringing fellowship with christ into everything that you do ask the holy spirit within you to go be with you in what you're doing and watch what happens. Watch how your mind changes. Watch how your outlook changes. Watch how your work ethic changes. The Lord will be with you in everything that you do. When you're, when you're out mowing the lawn, think of scripture. Talk to the Lord about this. What, what Bible verses talk about grass? What Bible verses talk about nature? What Bible verses talk about caring for the things of God? That mindfulness of the Lord, fellowshipping with, with the Lord in everything that you do, even in eating and drinking, dwell to the glory of God. Do you pray before you eat? Do you thank him for it? Do you, do you think about how the Lord provided for you, how the help, Lord helped you, how he gave you your job, how he gave you your finances, how he gave you the food, how he filled your cupboards, how he gave you a home, how he, he gave you everything he has, and he could take it all away if you wanted. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the Lord says, take up your bed and go in the name of the Lord. Ignore other people. But the Pharisees, but the Pharisees, the Jews said, it's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Um, and he that answered him, he that said unto me, that made me whole same said unto me, take up that bed and walk. Then I said, what man is that? The said unto me, take up that bed and walk. Okay, okay. Hold up. He that made me whole said unto me, take up that bed and walk. What man is he that told thee, take up that bed and walk? Did you see what happened? You notice that? Catch that one more time. He that made me whole said, take up thy bed and walk. What man is that which said it to thee, take up thy bed and walk? They completely, utterly just dismissed all the spiritual connection here. They dismissed all the miracle. They dismissed the entirety of the supernatural aspect of this, and they're only caring and focusing on the outward. See that? The hyper-legalistic Pharisee called religious only looks at the work, the doing the things that the outward. They couldn't care less about the inward, about the miraculous, about the supernatural, about the spiritual teaching, about the spiritual connection. They, they only care about that which they can see, touch, feel, and smell. That which strikes their senses. They literally don't care about the supernatural. What man is that that said unto thee, uh, can man heal the sick? 
Did a man make him whole? You see this? So also in this, the hyper-legalistic, pharisaical wackos, what they reduce the sovereignty of Christ. They reduce the abilities of Christ. They, they, they are more or less here. What they're saying here is that Jesus is just a man. He's just a man. Um, you see how twisting of scripture has dire consequences. What man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Jesus, he just happened to be walking by him, healed him quickly, walked away. And they just walked away. And this man here, also in this, we see an also a picture here. This is very concerning to me. As it happens to me from time to time, as it does to many other people. How quickly you can forget the miracles that God has done for you already. How quickly we can forget about the great workings the, the great changes, the great things God has done for us. Or the Lord can do for us a great revival and power and miracles and provision and answer prayers one day and the very next day we completely forget it all. How can we do that? And then when other people challenge us, we completely forget that. We completely forget about remembering the things of God. We don't fasten our eyes on Jesus. But that's where grace comes in. The Lord knows our weaknesses. The Lord knows our inabilities. The Lord knows what we struggle with. And the Lord helps us despite our weaknesses. The Lord helps us despite our limitations and our inabilities. The Lord knows that we are sinners saved by grace. The Lord knows that we're going to mess up. We're going to slip and fall and smack our faces off the cobblestones again. We're going to fall right into the, the mud pits all over again. It's going to happen. The Lord doesn't abandon us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never let you go. I will never abandon you. No man can pluck you out of my hand and you can't pluck yourself out of his hand either. And he's not going to pluck you out of his own hand. I will be with you whithersoever thou goest. My spirit shall always be with you. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. We live in the grace of God, not in our abilities to maintain the grace. We can't maintain the grace of God. Did Jesus take away the healing of this man because he forgot who he was? Because he didn't pay fully attention? Because he didn't fasten his eyes completely? Because he, he didn't realize who Jesus was? Did Jesus take away from him that gift that he gave him? No. Stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it for a minute. What makes us think 
that we have to earn God's grace. And we have to maintain to keep God's grace. That we have to do something to be worthy of his grace. He gives us his grace despite ourselves. Despite our inabilities. Despite our constant sinning and making mistakes and grieving him. <clears throat> despite our constant ups, uh, going against the word. Despite our inabilities, our weaknesses, despite our sin, his grace still resides. You do not have to earn grace. You can't earn it. There is not one single person that can earn God's grace. It's given. It's given. At the moment... You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, God, and Savior by grace, your faith, your belief alone. You are saved, sealed, forgiven by pure grace. You're an enemy of God, a child of the devil, an heir of hell. Did you earn that grace? No. He gave it to you despite yourself. Saul on the road to Damascus, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Ran full face into God's grace. Jesus Christ saved him. Despite who he was. Paul. Oh the things I want to do. I can't do the things I don't want to do. I do a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin. I'm the least of all saints. I'm the most wretched of all sinners. God's grace was unending. It's learning to stop wallowing in the porches of grace and just stand up. The pool never ends. The pool doesn't go away. The pool is always there. God's grace is sufficient and is always there. Stop wallowing about it. Stop worrying about it. Stand up. He gives you strength to stand in the porches of grace. Stop wallowing. Take up your bed of misery. Take up your bed of wallowing. Take up your bed of self-pity. Take up your bed of thinking your limitations can limit God, can limit the hand of God. Take up all the twistings of, of, of doubts and false logic and false reasoning and just stand in the grace of God. God gives you grace to stand, the strength to stand. He gives you the strength to fight. I will lift up the, the, the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. He's the one that's causing your heart to beat right now when you don't deserve it. He's causing you to take your breath, to take in a breath. You're breathing because he's allowing you to breathe. He's allowing you to move. He's allowing you to live. When you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. That's grace. The fact that you have food. That's grace. The fact that you're saved. 
That's grace. The fact that he came down and gave himself for us despite ourselves. That God stepped out of that, that sovereign throne in heaven. He set aside those robes and stepped down into the cesspool sewer of a world. Stepped into the cesspool sewer of a world and walked with us and taught us. And went to the cross for us. Is buried, buried and rose again the third day for us. That's grace. Grace is remembering. We don't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyways. Faith now is taking hold and standing in that which he gave you. Do you believe that God gave you grace? Now stand up. That's believing faith. That's believing faith. As you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for, for, the, for the grace of salvation, you put the same faith you have in your salvation on the rest of the story. The same faith in everything else. Is there a specific way we should break it fast or can we eat? Whatever. Ask him. He'll tell you. Seriously, ask the spirit of God within you how you should go about this. He'll put it on your heart, on your mind. You'll know. He'll show you. <clears throat> and he wist not, verse 13, and he wist not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Verse 14. Verse 14, afterward, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. The next part of this verse is going to trigger a multitude of people. The modern personal interpretation liberal Christians, <clears throat> a lot of the hyper charismatics, a ton, <clears throat> excuse me, a ton of other people are going to get really triggered, really upset. That's because of something Jesus says here. Sin no more lest a worse thing come unto thee. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. What does that imply? What does that imply? That God can chastise? Yeah, the Bible says that whom the Lord loves, he chastises. He chastises those whom he loves. You look at John chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, about the chastisement of God upon those withered branches of the vine. We see 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you'd be delivered unto the devil for the destruction of the flesh, but your spirit will still be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Psalms 16, uh, Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Proverbs 28, verse 9, if I turn away my ear from hearing the law, even my prayer shall be abomination. Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, which are called by my name, should humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The Bible teaches all throughout from Genesis to Revelation about the chastisement of God, the discipline of God as a loving father upon disobe disobedient children. And we disobey the Lord, we sin against the Lord, the Lord will correct us. 
And depending on the severity of what we've done and how rebellious and stubborn and ignorant and disobedient we are, will depend upon the severity of the discipline. Where in severe cases, the Lord can even allow devils to have ownership of you and to even take your life. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you'll be delivered unto the devil for the destruction of the flesh, but your spirit will still be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira struck dead for lying. But they were saved. They were Christians. They just did something really, really stupid. Deliberately, willfully sinned. But those who are saved can't willfully sin. Oh, really? Really? Um, where is that found? I'm sorry, uh, Second Opinions Chapter 3 doesn't exist. Could you please show me a Christian that doesn't willfully sin? Every time you sin, you sin willfully. You chose to look at the thing. You chose to say that. You chose to do that. Every time you sin, you chose to do that. No one made you do it. The devil doesn't come along, come along grab your hand and force you against your will to do the thing. He doesn't open your mouth and jam words and curses in there, make you say things against your will. No, you say and do and think things because that's what you wanted to do. People do things because that's what they wanted to do. Now, Christians sin. Christians make mistakes. Christians can do really stupid things. Now, what does he mean by go and sin no more? How can we possibly go and sin no more? Never sin again. Because even the Bible, doesn't the Bible even say those who are born of God do, do not commit sin? Well, how does that work? Well, okay. When we take what Jesus says, go and sin no more, to this man, and the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. And then later on we see those are born of God do not commit sin. The word commit is, is the same here as what Jesus is intending in the context of go and sin no more. The word commit means to live in unrepentant of. To live in, stay in, to not change be unrepentant of sin. That's what it means. Those who are born of God are incapable of living in sin without conviction. That's what it means. Go and fight against sin. Resist the devil that he may flee. Give no place to the devil, but fill your mind with scripture. Set no wicked thing before him. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I will allow no corrupt communication to be seen out of my mouth. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Thy word have I hid in my heart that it might not sin against thee. What can we do to set up barricades, shields, blocks, and protections against that which would try to tempt us to sin? How could we go and set up ways to help guard us from falling into sin? That's what he's talking. That's what scripture means there. Of going and deliberately fighting against the devil, resisting the devil, that he may flee, give no place to the devil. How do you give no place to the devil? Well, John chapter 15, verse 7. If ye abide in me and my word abides in you. Okay, question. And my word 
abides in you. To what extent? How much? How full? How much do you fill that cup? And Paul, full of the Holy Ghost. So when we fill ourselves, saturate ourselves with the word of God and the faith, there's going to be no room for any of the devil's wiles. And it'll be that much harder for him to tempt you and trouble you and try you. Because our minds, meditating on the word of God day and night, when we're constantly meditating, studying, memorizing scripture, giving ourselves to the word of God, saturating our lives with the word of God, the temptations and lies and deceits and, and wiles of the devil will be easily discerned, easily pointed out, and you'll be able to resist that. It gets easier to resist sin the more we give ourselves to the word of God. Just saying. It's, it gets easier to fight against the wiles of the devil the more you saturate yourself with Christ. Consider that. Now, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The Lord's chastisement, the Lord's discipline, we, we, you, don't, you don't call it punishment. God doesn't punish us. In fact, actually, the term chastisement and the discipline of God, the chastisement actually has a meaning to it. When you look at the Hebrew and the Greek, it gives really interesting uh, insight to the full extent of the meaning of the words. The word chastisement actually gives itself to the meaning of loving, corrective discipline. Loving, corrective discipline. It's not like, you know, the pagan gods up there with a club just waiting for you to mess up. And then he just pounds you over the head with it. And then he doesn't do that. God, in fact, rather he draws you and he corrects you. He says, look, this is why this is why I said this. This is why you shouldn't do this. I'm, I'm warning you. I'm telling you. I'm trying to help you here. He binds up our wounds. By his stripes we are healed. And he binds us up and he teaches us and instructs us. He doesn't beat us. He doesn't whip us. He doesn't do that. He calls and draws, he binds our wounds, and he helps us, he teaches us, he instructs us, and he corrects us. Look, the, the, correct, the correct way to go about this is this. That's how God works. A loving, gentle father with, with his beloved children. That's how God works. However, there are some Christians who are, now everybody knows some kids that are like this, the spoiled, rotten brats. The spoiled, rotten brats. Now, how does the Lord deal with his spoiled, rotten brats? Because there are a lot of Christians who are spoiled, rotten brats of God. That they're, they're the ones who are stubborn, rebellious, they're self-conceited, self-righteous, or whatever else. And that they refuse to do as they're told when they're told to. They believe the gospel. They are truly saved, but that, that they have such an issue of just listening to the Lord. They will not listen to the Lord. That the Lord says, this is wrong, this is sin, this is abomination, and they refuse to listen. How's the Lord going to deal with them? Well, the Lord's chastisement can get 
a little stricter, a little stricter, a little stricter. And he'll keep matching them with this until they finally listen. Or in worst case scenarios, God says, okay, that's enough. You're, you're giving the, the faith a bad name. You're causing the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. I've told you, I've warned you, you're not listening. So therefore, you are going to suffer the consequences, your action after I already told you what to do. And that's when God removes his hand of protection and blessing, not salvation. God never removes salvation. Removes his hand of protection and blessing. Says, fine, that's what you want? Go. The father didn't stop the prodigal son. When did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? But rather, the father waited. He waited on the road and watched. He watched and waited. Longed for his son to return. The son went off into the world and squandered his living, his inheritance. His inheritance squandered the fullness of his inheritance. With his riotous living, and drunkenness and revelry. And he ended up in the pen of the pigs, a picture of doing that which is forbidden. But when did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father? He didn't. But rather what happened? He came to his senses, realized what he was doing, came under conviction. He stopped hardening himself against the correction, and he became convicted and repentant. He got up, returned, and the father says, my son returns before the son apologized. Now, in this we see where the father allowed the son to go. If we are resisting the Lord and fighting the Lord on some things, will the Lord say, okay, fine, and just let us go? Yeah. The Lord says, look, we're supposed to go this way. We're supposed to go down this road, but I want to go down this one. Okay. I'll wait. You'll be back. And we go off and we fall on our faces. We get beat up by the devils and we get all bent out of shape and we get in a really bad way. And then we come limping back and all ripped up, beaten up and bloody and say, I'm sorry, I should have listened. Okay, let's go. That's how the Lord works. That's how the Lord works. He will never disown you. God will not grab you by the scuff of the neck and the seat of the pants and hurl you into the kingdom. He doesn't chain you up and drag you down the path. He doesn't cause it so that so nothing bad ever happens. No, that's not going to work. You're going to have your best life now. That's not going to happen. The reason bad things happen is because we've allowed it. Or because we've made ourselves such a threat. Such a threat like Job. That you actually get the devil's attention. And they come up before the Lord. And, and actually challenge the Lord in regards to you. Like how Satan challenged God about Job. And God then allows the devils to try you as not a test of your faith. But a proof of your faith. To prove your faith. Not test it. Prove it. God knew Job would not, de would not deny him. God knew that the devil could not break Job. So God sometimes can allow these things to come down of demonic activity and temptation and trial and trouble and all these kinds of things on purpose to prove you, 
to prove you to others. Because God knows that no matter what the devils throw at you, you're unwavering, unmovable. You're like stone in the things of God. And that the, and that the world, other people who are witnessing this, seeing this, it grabs their attention. And they see evidence of God right there. And as the Bible says, and they'll know that God is in you of a truth. That God is able to use you. Test your metal. Prove your metal to the fires of the devils. They can't melt God's metal. So in this we see the same thing is with salvation. The salvation of God is a metal that not even we can break. That not even we can dull. That not even we can remove. The salvation of God is permanent. But the trials and temptations, they come and go. Yeah, if you read that, he has faith in the end shall be saved. That That is in regards, actually, if you read the full context of that passage, that is actually talking about the uh, tribulation period. Because the tribulation is actually limited. So that to endure the temptations, endure the tribulation, endure the hardships. That what it means is they shall be saved is saved out of this. It's the same context as it talks about a woman in childbearing, that she is saved in childbearing. Does that mean that she gets born again when she gives birth? No, it means it's saved from the pain and the anguish of the of the birthing pangs. That's what that means. The same context there is endured, endured to the end of what? The end of what? The tribulation, the, the, the troubles, the, the all these things that come down upon you of the oppression. But yeah, to have faith like Job that no matter what comes down upon us, no matter what comes against us, to endure in the things of God. To stand strong, to, to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And when he said this, when Jesus said this, verse 14, we'll end on verse 15. We're going to break this chapter in half again. In verse 15, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. What happens? What happens? This man now looked fully into the face of Christ. He looked into the eyes of Jesus he listened to the full words of Christ. He put aside all the doubts, the fears, the manipulation of the world and of the enemy. And he listened to what Jesus says. Now, what does he immediately do? What does he immediately do? Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple and says unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Now, look what's happening here. The man is no longer in, in the porches there where he was before. He's now in the temple. He's now in the temple. He's gone to God for answers and help and wisdom and insight. And other people are troubling him and telling him false things. Jesus finds him. It says, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Verse 15. What does he immediately do now with clarification of Christ? He departs 
and tells the Jews, the same people who manipulated him before, the same people who denied the miracle, who denied Christ, who denied the power, who denied the insight, who denied the fullness of Christ, the same people who only judge after the outward appearance, he goes back and tells them, told them, told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole. Jesus said so. Jesus taught so. Jesus made me whole. Jesus is the one who formed me. Jesus bestowed the grace upon me. Jesus is the full focus. He is the everything. He told them Jesus. Don't listen to a single thing that anyone else ever says. That goes against and contradicts the word of God. Who try to judge by way of religion and tradition and protocol and legalistic Phariseeism. What you need is Jesus Christ in his whole fullness. Jesus is the Christ, the mighty God manifested in the, in the flesh. Who says by grace through faith to belief alone. He says, now follow me. If you believe in me, now follow me. Do what I say. Be my friends, do what I say. Be my disciples, come pick up your cross, follow me. They'll hate you because of me. You'll be persecuted for my name's sake. In this world, you shall suffer tribulation. But waver not, doubt not, fear not, stress not, care not, worry not. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be made known unto God. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Fill yourself with the knowledge of Christ and his fullness of grace and mercy. His commandments, his commandments override the commandments of man. What does God say? God says, as the apostle said to the Sanhedrin, whether it seem right unto you to obey you or not, we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. What does God say? That's the only thing that matters. Be as the Bereans, though. If someone says something in relation to the Lord, sprinkle it with a little salt, but keep it at arm's length. Go to the word of God. Search it out. But what does God say? Yeah, well, I have degrees and diplomas. Did you make a world yet? Then you don't have authority. Yeah, but I, but look at I, I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. Look at who I am. You know, touch not God's anointed. That whole stupid thing. Yeah, but God says. Yeah, but I am a prophet. Uh, but you're not a god. Prove all things. Test all things. Test the spirits to see if they are of God. What does the Lord say? Anything, no matter what it is, anything that would contradict the word of God, even remotely, any opinion, doctrine, teaching, ideology, feeling, experience, vision, dream, whatever. Catechism, creed, commentary, whatever. That contradicts the word of God, even remotely, is not of God. What did Jesus say? Like the nobleman believed the words of Christ and his son was healed. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The word, the word proves all things. The word tests all things. The word endures all things. We can't endure it. We can't endure it. We'll break. We easily break. Our minds break. We easily break. But the Lord says, abide in me. 
and I will not allow thee to be tempted above that which ye are able. I am with you in all things, whithersoever thou goest. Hold to the word of God. Hold to the spirit of Christ. Hold to grace. Don't think that your abilities are what's necessary. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace overrides our abilities. He assists us. Then we put our hands to the wheel. The hand of the Father is placed on top of our hands and he gives us strength to push. He's with us in everything that we, that we do. He's with us everywhere we go. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Praise the name of God and thank him for his grace. So we're going to wrap it up there. We're going to break this chapter in half. So I hope this has been a, an encouragement and a blessing to you. Uh, okay, comments here. Okay, so then does he... Okay, we already answered that one. Um, uh, literally, run. We, we can get attacked spiritually just by being around people that go against Scripture. Just went through it. Yeah, yeah no, it's possible. Evil communications corrupt good manners. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It is to be mindful of everything that you're doing and bring the Lord into it. If we are around other people that are like that, let's make sure that they know very well, fully, clearly, without a shadow of a doubt, who it is we serve. Who it is we serve. So Jesus sat with the publicans and sinners, but he didn't do so veiling himself. He did so openly, clearly, but in such a way that they wanted to sit with him and listen. He didn't condone what they were doing. He didn't tolerate that what they were doing. He didn't water down the truth. He didn't weaken the message, but he taught it in grace. He was gracious because as, as they are, we were, as we are, they shall be. But we want to be in such an example of Christ's likeness that they be willing to hear it. But be open and blatant, bold, unashamed, but gracious, not gutless, gracious. Amen. All right, so there you go, folks. Any other comments, questions, issues, insights, anything at all? If you enjoyed this message, please make sure you give this a like, give this a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe, hit the notification bell icons. You know, we put up new videos. And make sure as well, folks, you check out all our other playlists, our other content. we got tons and tons of stuff cover a lot of different uh, uh, topics and doctrines and, and things. Please make sure you check it out. You also check out our website, christiancoffeetime.ca. And we have tons of uh, stuff there, all links on their platforms and downloadable gospel tracks for free and a bunch of other goodies on there as well. So with that, folks, if there's nothing else, uh, we'll wrap that up uh, again. Tomorrow is our Saturday. Uh, tomorrow, that's going to be our Q&A day. So please make sure you set your uh, your uh, your alarm for that. We'll be going live probably around... 10.45, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. At, uh, Saturday is a Q&A day, so it's just an open floor. So whatever questions, topics, whatever comes up. There's a couple things I want to talk about tomorrow. Uh, we'll get to it then. That uh, should be interesting. So I hope you'll tune in for that. So with that then, folks, God bless you. God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. Hope to see you again, folks. And as always. If I don't see you again, I'll see you in the sky. God bless.